verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All the way through verse 20, Jesus has been speaking about the blessings that accompany stepping into the kingdom. And two weeks ago, as we examined or were examined by chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, what we found out, Jesus' own statement about himself. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus is God the Son. You want to see what keeping the Ten Commandments looks like? In a person, look at Jesus. He could say to his worst enemies, which of you accuses me of sin? He said, and this would hurt our ears coming from the mouth of any other man, he said, I always do those things that please my father. His father spoke from heaven upon the event of his coming up out of the water, having been baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is the embodiment of the keeping of the law. Not only did he do that, it is the very thing that qualified him so that when he was nailed to the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was that one examined by, <coughs> examined by the priests who had just been examining thousands and thousands and thousands of Passover lambs. And now here before them is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they could find no flaw in him, even though they had every possible motivation to find a flaw in him they couldn't. And then he was nailed to that cross, and as the sinless Son of God, of a value in his Father's eyes greater than the value of the entire human race put together, that's why he can bear the sins of all of us, not just one of us. In his single person, he is of greater value than all of us. And so he goes to the cross, and yes, what the Romans, the soldiers of Herod Antipas beat him, his face. The Romans pushed a crown of thorns down upon his head. They ripped the flesh off of his back with a cat of nine tails. They drove the nails through his wrists and his feet. And that was horrible. But it was principally the judgment starting about noon. He was on the cross from about 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. About noon, it became unnaturally dark in that part of Palestine, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God the Father then began to pour out the judgment, the lake of fire due to the entire human race for an eternity upon his son. Until three hours later, about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out, it is finished, it's paid in full. He had paid our sin debt. I fulfilled the law 
And I, one of the reasons why I needed to do that was so that I could be that sacrifice for you. I could be that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but I also fulfilled the prophets. All of those statements made by the Hebrew prophets, specifically about Messiah that he fulfilled all the way from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent as his own heel was struck. Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name God with us, Emmanuel. And all of those other host of prophecies specifically about him that he fulfilled right down to the letter. And so all the way through verse 20, we see the benefits that come to us by a simple trust in him. He is the one who walks us into kingdom blessing. But beginning in verse 21, he now begins to turn his attention principally to us because we have a gigantic problem. I can step into Christ. I can be walked into by the help of his Holy Spirit. I can be brought into the benefit of what Jesus did for me on the cross. Yay! How great! My eternal Standing with God is completely, utterly addressed. I stand just before God forever. And God has a welcoming smile on his face. But then within about oh, 30 seconds of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you discover uh, an unpleasant truth. I still have this nasty sin nature in me. And it's yet to take place, it will take place, that God's going to reach in and grab my fallen nature and yank it out by the roots and throw it away. That awaits my resurrection. And my default is to be religious. My default, apart from the help of God's Holy Spirit, my default is just to be superficial. And that's what all human religion is about, putting on a good front while the internal reality is in complete defiance of what's on the outside. And so Jesus says this, because he now begins to address these internal turmoil issues. You have heard, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. In fact, Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And in Numbers 35.30, it says if someone commits a murder, they're to be executed. No exceptions. Do it. Pile of rocks. Do it. You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. So, hey, what's the obvious choice I need to make? I am just not going to kill people. <laughs> I will restrain my hand when I have the urge to put a knife in someone. I just won't do that. And I'll be good. And God will be so happy with me because I didn't kill anybody. Eh. 
it's a good thing not to kill people, but it's just the bare first step. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Ouch. Angry? Whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You mean I'm supposed to actually conform to that internally? Now, let me point something out. Notice how he states this. It's very specific. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Is it possible to have a cause? Of course it's possible to have a cause. Did Jesus get angry? Jesus got angry and cleansed the temple. The Bible says that God is angry with the sinner every day. But God has no fallen nature. Jesus did not have a fallen nature. They could express their anger and not sin. My problem is, and by the way, in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 26 and 7, he says, be angry. <laughs> Whoa. Paul says to the Ephesian congregation, be angry. But do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Is it possible for us to have a righteous anger? Yes, it is possible to have a righteous anger. If someone offends the nature of God, if someone speaks ill or lies about what the true and living God is like, that would be something to be righteously angry about. But it's very, we need to be very careful. And Paul expresses this in Ephesians. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's he saying? He's saying there is such a thing as righteous anger, but it is a very dangerous emotion. And therefore, while we can be righteously angry, we need to take a step very soon of setting it aside because it is so easy to let that anger drag us over into an unrighteous expression of it. And so you set it aside. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21, Paul makes this statement. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to tell you something. I would dare say there's not a single person in this room who has not at some point in their life been betrayed. It happens. But do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, to anger. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
as a Christian, as a person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if, if someone as G Judas betrayed Jesus, we give the right for retaliation over to God. Amen. You give the right to retaliation over to God. Give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. I think one of the most powerful pictures for us in the entire Bible in this regard is that when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples in the upper room, it included Judas Iscariot. He washed the feet of Judas Iscariot knowing that Judas had already set in motion his betrayal. And Jesus washed his feet. It wasn't Jesus' job to defend him. It was his father's job. How did that work out for Judas? Not well. If your enemy is hungry, what should you do? Wash his feet. We were talking about this in the Sunday school class. I just love this. By the way, we were looking at 1 Peter. Perfect commentary on this in Egypt. And this is about, this is after, right, about two weeks after Easter, this made it onto the internet. This Egyptian Coptic priest standing before a packed cathedral the Monday after Easter. A, a, a church service that typically is not at all well attended, and he's speaking in, to a packed cathedral. And he basically says, now this is in, he's speaking in his native language, it's in captions, he basically says, this is my paraphrase, you know, these people came in and they killed a bunch of us. How did that work out for them? It was supposed to intimidate us. It was supposed to make us frightened. It was supposed to make us flee Christianity and bow before them. Instead, I'm speaking to a packed cathedral. Which normally this service has almost no attendance. And instead, how did that work out for them? And oh, by the way, you want real revenge? You want revenge on them? I'm going to tell you what to do. Get in their face and say, I We forgive you. <laughs> they belong. Put them in God's hand. Let me tell you, God knows what to do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's exactly what that Coptic priest was saying. You will be, in fact... Pouring coals of fire on their head. Do not overcome by be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Anger. It can be righteous, mostly isn't, but it can be even if it's righteous, you set it aside, Paul says in Ephesians. You set it aside quickly because it is such a dangerous emotion. Matthew 5.22, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. 
Even if you have a cause, be careful. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, now in the margin of my Bible, it says empty head. Really, it just means nothing. It's, it's the same as if you said to somebody, you're worthless. You're nothing. Excuse me? That man, that woman, that boy, that girl bears the image of God. They are of such inestimable worth that Jesus paid the penalty for their sins so that they might be free to be forgiven and not spend eternity in the lake of fire. That's how value, and for you to say, you're worthless. You just poked God in the eye. Even worse, whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. A fool is someone for whom there is no hope. By the way, Psalm 107, one of those scenarios is what? The fool whom God transforms and delivers by means of his word takes the fool to the place of understanding. And yet when we say that to someone, we are saying to them, you're hopeless. You, <laughs> you just poked God in the eye. You don't want God's attention. Having poked him in the eye, he can slam dunk you. Whoever says, you fools, shall be in danger of hellfire. Do not be, <coughs> Jesus will say, like the scribes. Do not be like the Pharisees. Do not be like the Sadducees who will tell you. You keep the letter of the law, you're done. Just don't put a knife in somebody. And you've done it. No. Do you think that the creator of all things is so shallow in his person that that would be good enough for him? That his followers would simply be followers in the externals, but in fact, the opposite of him in their nature? That's not the God you find in the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus says. Peter, as we looked at Peter this morning in the Sunday school, leave aside the empty traditions you got from your fathers. The Jewish people in Jesus' day and the days of the apostles are following empty traditions that do not authentically replicate what is found in the Hebrew Scriptures. And Jesus is warning these people against it. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. Don't you dare 
Come before God dressed exactly the way you're expected to and bringing exactly the appropriate offering and offer that with the approval of the priest. But inside, you're full of anger, bitterness, hatred, despising other people. Do you expect God to welcome that sacrifice? Don't. Don't tell me that. No, 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 no. You go, before you present that sacrifice, you go to your brother. If he offended you, you go to him and try to reconcile it. If you offended him, go to him and seek reconciliation. But you get that cleared up as much as dwells within you, as much as you have the power to make that happen, you follow through on that. What an insult to God it is to think that he would be so superficial as to accept that superficial sort of worship. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled, reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Because you are to be internally what you appear to be externally. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Sin, law-breaking, has consequences. Now, he uses a law-breaking picture because it's so obvious. We've all seen it happen, but it happens on all these different levels. God knows how to drive home a point. God knows how to judge. What does the Holy Spirit say? And by the way, Paul's quoting the Hebrew Scriptures there when he says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I will repay. Not I might or I may, I will repay. God is the one who rectifies. The best thing I can do having sought reconciliation, if there is no, a, no willingness to be reconciled, just back out of the situation because you don't want to be standing there when the lightning strikes. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. What does Paul again say in Romans 12, quoting the Hebrew Scriptures? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That same God was so to the penny clear with what he did his, to his son on the cross that Jesus could say it is paid in full. It is finished. And that's what that means. The debt is paid. People who reject that work, who reject God's rebuke, unwise decision unwise decision. We are to be internally what we 
are externally. What did he do in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20? He showed us kingdom blessing. He showed us how to step into kingdom blessing. That's where we're coming to the Lord's table. And that's what we're commemorating, that Jesus did an utterly, completely final work that we're going to commemorate that allows us that he was the law keeper for us. He took sin's penalty for us so that his father would be completely free to forgive us and bring us into a complete holy welcome with him. But having done that, now, what did we discover? 30 seconds after we came to Christ? Ah! Mark still has this bent, fallen nature. What do I do to deal with that? And that's as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to show us how to deal with the internals of us. And this is where he begins, is in this place. Now, I had originally planned to go on and do the next paragraph as well. I'm going to save that instead till next time. And because it really attaches to what follows better. And we're, what we're going to do now is come to the Lord's table.